Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Last week, we talked about how it really begins with remembering who you are. Remembering who you are in Christ, that you are no longer you no longer walk as Gentiles do, because you are now a follower of Jesus. Um, that in that we remember who we are. We also repent and believe the gospel that God is making us new through our repenting and believing of the gospel over and over again. Uh, and then lastly, these rhythms of renewal, which help us proactively put on the new self, where we read God's word and we rest and we do these things in order to see God shape us for this new life. And I really hope that you did that this past week. I hope that you took time uh, to, to spend time in God's word, to pray. I hope you took time to rest before God. These are things that God has given us, not as obligations, but as life-giving joys to help us grow in our relationship with him. They help us prepare ourselves for each day as we face uh, the, the trials and the tribulations of life. And so if, you, if you're trying to find a way to grow in your faith, we'd love to help you do that. You can actually text the word GROW to 617 958 Six zero zero. I'm gonna say that one more time. Text the word "grow" to six one seven nine five eight six zero zero eight, and we'll send you a our annual reading plan, as well as we can. If you would like to, you can sign up for text reminders for that plan. As and even if you want to read with a partner, you can choose that option, and you can read along with a partner. It's one way that you can grow. And we do this. We we, we shape ourselves for this life because God wants us to live actual holy lives. He wants us to live lives that are actually shaped by and lived out in the way that he's called us to live. He, we are changed people. We are changing. And God wants us to put our faith into practice. He wants us to live out what we believe. Uh, Francis Chan, who's a, a very popular pastor and preacher, once talked about a time where he said, you know, imagine that, he said, imagine that I was talking to my daughter and I told her, I want you to clean your room. And she said, okay, dad, I'll clean my room. And an hour later, he comes back and he says, sweetheart, did you clean your room? And she says, well, no, I didn't actually clean my room, but I thought a lot about it. I thought about it. I really pondered about what it would be like to clean my room. And I got my, all my friends together and we studied what it would look like to clean her. And we studied all the different cleaning techniques of how you clean your room. We even looked at how to clean your room in Greek. We did all of these things because that's, that's what you want. He said, well, but did you actually clean your room? She said, no, but we thought a lot about it. What God wants us to do is to take our faith and put it into practice. He wants to, us to live these things out. So when he tells us to, to love our neighbor, he really wants us to love our neighbor. When, when God tells us to love one another, he really wants us to love one another. When he wants us to put off old habits, he really wants us to put off old habits. And here in verses 25 through 32 that we'll be covering this morning, Paul lays out some specific actions that we are to take on as Christians. There are certain things that are now prohibited that we can no longer do, and there are different ways that we're called to live in, in light of that. So it's not enough to just, to just stop doing bad things. We need to do good things in their place. We need to replace old affections with new affections. And when you look at these commandments, we see things like tell the truth, deal with your anger, don't steal, use your words carefully. But when you look at those and you just look at the commandments, wouldn't any Buddhist say that? Wouldn't any secular humanist say you should not be angry? Wouldn't any Mormon or Muslim, anybody who claims to be religious or any, really anybody in the world would say, these are things that you should not do. What makes Christianity different? 
Comedian Kathy Ladman says that all religions are the same. Religion is basically guilt with different holidays. What's unique about Christianity? What's unique in our moralism and the call to obey? So today we're gonna be looking at what makes Christianity different and what makes Christianity give a different answer. And the first thing we see is Christianity gives a different answer to how you change. It gives a different answer to how you change. Now remember the basis for why we live the life we're called to live is because we've been given a new life and a new identity in Jesus. It is not our natural ability to do good. We don't live this way because God says that we can do it on our own, but that we have to be changed. We cannot change ourselves. Last week, we talked about how we don't just put off bad habits. We're putting off an entirely old self. It's not enough to say, I don't do these things anymore, but this is not who I am anymore. I'm no longer this person. And so when we look at verse 25, where it says, therefore, having put away falsehood, we are no longer, it's not just that we don't lie, but we are people of the truth. We are to become who Jesus truly has called us and meant for us to be. And so we put away old sins and old habits because of who we now are in Christ. We are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Being a new creation means we have a new identity and a new name. And we see this in the Great Commission when Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're taking on an entirely new identity, an entirely new self, an entirely new way to live because of who you now are in Christ. As a disciple, this multifaceted personality as a disciple, that because God is your father, you are now part of a family. Isn't that good news, the fact that you're now part of a family that we were once orphaned, but we have a heavenly father who loves us? The the way we relate to God is not as a taskmaster, but as a father who wants our best. That we love and care for each other as brothers and sisters. This radically shapes the way that we live. That because Jesus came to serve and said that there's no servant that is greater than the master, we are also called to be servants. But because the Holy Spirit was sent to us with God's mission, we are sent as missionaries with the good news of Jesus. And all of this changes how we live. So we've been given a new identity, but not just that, we're also given a new heart. Ezekiel, the prophet, told of the day that we would no longer have a heart of stone, but we would be given a heart of flesh. And so this new identity and this new heart really tell us what it looks like to live in this new way. This is important because it tells us how how we change. Because you've been given a new identity, it means that the work to change you comes from outside of you. We live in a world that tells us that you just need to suck it up, you need to well up some, some pride within yourself, you just need to change your circumstances, change your mindset, change all of these things and you will be right. But because Jesus came to save us, the Spirit changes us. And the Father declares you right through the work of Christ. So the work to change you comes from from outside of you, but also the direction that you change is different. The world says that we change from the outside in, but Jesus says we change from the inside out. Our motivations and behaviors don't change because of our actions, but our actions change because our motives and behaviors and desires are being changed by Jesus. 
And this is a completely different way than any other way of living because every other way of living says that the solution is in you. You just need to be more determined. You need to, to do what's right. You need to achieve. You need to perform. You just need better habits. And that's gonna change who you are. So what, what's basically being said is that if you do right, you'll be right. If you do good, then you'll be good. But if you do bad, then you are bad. What's basically being said is that you are the sum of all of your actions. All of your good actions, all of your bad actions are ultimately who you are. And that's why we imagine this cosmic scale. Everybody imagines the cosmic scale, right? Where say every time you do a good action, you put a little pebble over here. And every time you do something bad or think something bad, you put it over here. And we really just kind of hope that we do more good than bad at the end. And if we do more good than bad, then God will love and accept us. And whether it's an organized religion or some sort of self-determined moralism of your, of your own, they basically are making the same claim. It is up to you. You're only going to get what you earn. You're going to be good if you do good. And so the way that you relate to God is that if you obey, you're accepted. The way you would relate to the world, maybe you don't have to be religious. You could be, like, be a humanist and say, well, if I just care about the right causes and I love the earth, and do all these things I'm supposed to do, then I'm going to be loved and accepted by everyone else. But the problem with both of these is that none of them have a way to deal with guilt. None of them have a way to deal with shame. None of them have a way to deal with your past or your failures. They can tell you a promise of a better tomorrow, that you can do better tomorrow, but it has no way of dealing with what you've done. And so what you better do is you better do more than good than you did bad in the past or you're not truly going to be a different person. But what Christianity promises is that Jesus takes all of that. What, what other ways promise is that you're still those things, but what Jesus says is Jesus says, I'll take your guilt. I'll bear your shame. I'll become your failures. And you can completely change from the top to the bottom, from the inside out. There's this whole person change that Jesus promises. And what this means is that when God sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus in your place. Because as you put on the righteousness of Jesus, you're counted and considered perfectly obedient and perfectly loved. You are counted as someone other than yourself. And taking on this identity and, and living into this identity is both instant and progressive. You are instantly declared to be right before God, but progressively you are being made this way and living into this, this new identity. I'll give you an example of this. I don't know if any of you ever watched the show Mad Men. There's a character named Don Draper who John Hamm plays. And I think every dude had a comb over and drank whiskey because of this show over the last 15 years. And uh, at the end of the show, it's revealed that Don Draper isn't really Don Draper. He's a man named Dick Whitman. And Dick Whitman had a terrible upbringing. He had, he had an abusive father. Everything was, was his, uh, an awful upbringing. Um, he goes to, to Korea. He fights in the Korean War, and he fights alongside the real Don Draper. Don Draper is his, his commanding officer. He's, he's educated. He's married. He's successful. He went to, went to a good college. Well, they're in the middle of something, and a bomb goes off, and it kills Don, the real Don Draper, and it mars him beyond recognition. And in that moment, Dick Whitman takes Don Draper's dog tags and trades them out. And when he puts on those dog tags, he now takes on the identity of Don Draper. And from that moment forward, everyone looks at him and refers to him as Don. They treat him as Don Draper. He's respected as Don Draper. And then he spends the rest of his life becoming Don Draper. 
In the very same way, with, 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 without earning it, without, well, without deserving it, we are given the name of Jesus. We're giving a new identity in Jesus. And what God is doing is spending the rest of our lives shaping us to be who God promises us to be to make us look like Christ, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful and just to complete it. And if you look at verse 30, it tells us that the Spirit is doing this by sealing us for the day of redemption. God is committed to changing you. And when you come to Jesus, you will change. He will change you. One thinker said that when we come to Jesus, there's a process of disorganization and reorganization that happens. Disorganization and reorganization. It's like an HGTV remodeling show. We've seen that. They go into a house. It, it, it's really rough looking. It's kind of best if you let, give them control. Let them do whatever they want to do to the house and fix it in whatever way. They're like, some of this stuff has to go. This carpet's been here since the 70s. Uh, some of this stuff just needs to be repurposed. All sorts of new things get brought into the house and they make something beautiful. When Christ comes into our life, he begins to disorganize and reorganize our personality. He comes in and he disorganizes and reorganizes our priorities. What he says is there are some ways about you that are going to change. Before I became a Christian, I was incredibly angry. And over time, God has shaped that in me. Maybe what you find to be a priority change is that it's no longer about you, but it's about the glory of God and his mission in the world. He begins to shape these things and change how you react, change what you love, where you look for validation. What is God disorganizing in your life right now? And are you fighting it instead of allowing God to reshape it? How is he reorganizing and reshaping and replacing things for his glory and for your good? And this can even happen in the middle of your failures. The beauty of Christianity is that God uses your failures for his glory. Your failures do not keep you out, but they're actually what helps you see the gap between God and his glory and where you are. And it shows that what happens is it makes us long for Jesus even more. It makes us long for the day when we will be made new. It gives us a new hunger for God and dependency upon the Spirit. But we also see that Christianity shifts what motivates you to obey. Christianity gives a different answer to why you change. It gives a different answer for why you are called to live a moral life. Every way of living has a controlling answer for why you do what you do. Everybody probably remembers being a kid. You're at home. Mom and dad said, hey, we need you to clean the house. You're like, great, I'm going to clean the house. Two hours later, you hear the garage door start to come up or you hear the keys jingle in the doorknob, and what do you do? You go into panic mode. You run around the house and clean the house that you did not clean. You start shoving sneakers in the refrigerator. You're doing whatever you can to get the house to appear clean. What is your motivation? It's not out of a deep well of love for mom and dad that you just clean the house, right? You clean the house because you didn't want to get in trouble. There are lots of moral reasons why we obey. Some of us just think, it's, this is right, this is wrong. I, just, I need to do what's right. I need to avoid what's wrong. Sometimes it's, it's this idea of reciprocity that I'm going to just, I'm going to do this because I want God to bless me. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do this because I want to avoid punishment. Sometimes it's that God's just going to be mad at me or it's just, I don't want to be seen as that kind of person. I want to be, I want to feel good about the way that I'm living. But the gospel gives a very simple answer for why we obey. And it is this, it is love. That Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. What's he saying there? He's saying that you don't hurt people you love. You're not going to want to hurt them. 
You're going to feel awful when you do. Matt Waldrop and I have been friends for almost 10 years. I don't speak kindly to Matt most of the time um, so that he'll be my friend. I, I treat Matt well because he is my friend, because I love him. The reason that we avoid sin and we seek to obey God is because we love God. And this is why verse 30 says that don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. All these ways that we live that are counter to God and his glory ultimately grieve him. The Holy Spirit here is is not like the the force in Star Wars. I think that's what we imagine with the Holy Spirit. We imagine like the force and like we could be a Jedi. According to this, that's not what's going on. The, the, The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, and it's how we interact with God. And so when we sin, our sin grieves God. It hurts him. It pains the very one who has loved us so perfectly. And so when we hurt other people, When we disobey what he calls good, it offends him. When we lie knowing that God is truth, when we get angry in ways that lead to hurt, when we're reckless with our words and detract from his glory, it grieves the very heart of God. And the reason it grieves God is that God is not like us. He's the very essence of beauty and truth and goodness. He's the very definition of love. He is truly the only one worthy of all glory and praise. And he is the one who gets to tell us how we are called to live because it is for our good. And so when we miss that, which is what sin is, is to miss the mark, we grieve God because we're not giving him the glory and the love that he's due. And we love God because of how God has loved us. Verse 32 tells us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. The greatest love that has ever been shown is that God would give us his very own son to die in our place. And so our our obedience is a response to God's great love for you and me. And so the question moves from the reason we obey, why we obey, it moves from, is this right or wrong? Will I get in trouble if I do this? How do I feel about this? To, is this what God wants? Is this what... God says is good? Is this what gives God glory? Is this what shows my love for him based on his love for me? We need to know God in order to love him. The first eight years of my marriage, I bought my wife roses for Valentine's Day. Like, oh, great. That's what you do. I've seen movies. That's what people do. You buy roses. And my wife probably told me more than once, and I just didn't hear her or wasn't listening or thinking I, I had achieved and done the right thing. She, you know, she told me she didn't really like roses. And I remember like after eight years, she finally said, you know, I finally listened. I'm really thankful, but I just, I just don't like roses. She's like, I, I like other types of flowers. I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do. I was doing what I thought was good. I was doing what I thought was loving. But to know someone personally is to really seek out to know how to love and serve them. What God is asking of us is to know him and to know his word. And so many times, no matter how hard we're working, we do things that are contrary to God's glory and contrary to God's law that ultimately don't don't love him. God's love is radically reshaping why we live. Augustine said that the key to happiness is that our loves will be properly ordered. And so God wants to reorder our loves around him. Now, I want you to notice that in this passage, it is completely relational. Everything in this passage has to deal with other people. Now, you can lie to yourself. 
You, you can be angry with yourself. But ultimately, all of these things are said in the context of a unified community. What Paul is promising a church can be if it centers itself on Jesus and centers itself on the gospel and being the people that God has called us to be. All of these sinful habits are relationship killers. Every single one of these will destroy relationships and they will stifle the type of community that we're trying to build at City on a Hill. Lies destroy relationships. You cannot build a relationship that's constantly built on lies. Anger threatens the safety and the time that's needed for us to be vulnerable with one another. So if someone is really angry with you, you're just not gonna open up to them. Our words, if they're reckless, will keep people from growing and they dishonor God. And so I want City on a Hill, I want us to be a truthful community. A people who will give each other the good news of Jesus. People who are not hiding our sin from one another. It's really easy for us to come in here on a Sunday morning and to plaster a smile on our face or to keep a, a healthy distance instead of opening up our lives to one another, whether it's here or whether it's in a community group and saying, here's, here's my junk, here's my mess, here's all my struggles. Being a truthful community is refusing to exaggerate. I don't have to let, make you think I'm any more than I actually am. But saying, here, here, here I am and here's my need for Jesus. I hope you need Jesus too. What does it look like for us to be a truthful community? There are going to be plenty of opportunities for you to get mad, right? There going to be plenty of opportunities for you to get mad at me. I'll probably say something, probably this week, that you're not going to like, and that's okay. But what if we were marked by a culture of deep grace and forgiveness, where we didn't stay mad at each other long, but community would be a place where we gave each other words that built up our faith. We pointed each other to the grace that we've received through Jesus rather than tearing each other down and expecting perfection. What if this was a place where you experienced deep and robust friendships? And I wanna challenge you in this. I wanna challenge you to help build that. I pray this morning that you're not simply here for yourself. I'm glad you're here. For whatever reason you're here, I want you to hear about Jesus but I wanna challenge you to be a part of building the church that God wants us to be. That we live this out because we know how much we've been loved by Jesus to really dig in and be a pillar for building what God is building here. See, love has to be what motivates. Do you, do you look at other people within our church body with compassion? The same compassion that Jesus has shown you and you know that you're doing this when you realize that your priorities are more about others than they are yourself. That you're willing to die to your own preferences for the sake of somebody else. You know this is happening when you start to become friends with people that you wouldn't naturally get along with. Your heart begins to change. Would you ask God to give you a deeper sense of love for this church as we live out these commandments together? As we close, I want to really drill down on what changes. I want to drill down on these specific commands for just a couple of minutes because we are called to actually live these out. These out. So what it changes, it, the gospel changes what you change. So I want to take a few minutes and unpack this and look firstly at the words, how our words change. We see this in two ways here in the text. The first is that we would tell the truth. Kind of already talked about this being a truthful community. John Stott says that fellowship is built on trust and trust is built on truth. We have to be a people committed to the truth. Now, this, this, this phrase here in verse 25 that we speak the truth with his, each will speak the truth with his neighbor actually comes from Zechariah chapter eight. If you look at Zechariah in the Old Testament, there's talk of, of, of a faithful city. 
And in this city, there was this vision of people standing in the gate, which was kind of like the coffee shop of the like seventh century BC. And they would stand together around the, around the gate and they would just tell each other the truth. They would remind each other of the truth. Now, I know in our context, when someone says, you know, I'm just telling the truth, that's kind of a way of them softening the fact that they just smack you in the face with a sledgehammer. Like, that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that we just need to be truth tellers, but that our words are seasoned with truth. That, again, we refuse to hide our sin, that we don't exaggerate, that we don't lie to each other in ways that conceal or inflate or deflect, but that we would be people who are quick to give each other the gospel. There are so many times when we're talking with one another and someone's expressing something and we're, kind of, we're not really confessing, we're kind of complaining. And it's easy to come along somebody and say, you know, that just sounds really tough. That person really is a jerk. Instead of going, let, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you of how you've been forgiven. Let me remind you of the grace that you've been shown. And we give each other the truth because we're members of one another. You, you wouldn't do this to yourself. You wouldn't put another yourself in a position to hurt you. John Chrysostom, who was an early church father, said, if the eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? If the tongue tastes what is bitter, does it deceive the stomach? Lying is a gross hindrance to the proper functioning of the body. So if you were to see a friend and they were standing beside a snake. When I was, when I was 12 years old, uh, my brother and I went fishing. And we went fishing on this, on, on this farm in Alabama where my, my grandpa would always take us. And we were fishing, and it's a hot day. And what would often happen is that snakes would crawl out of the water or crawl out of the woods, and they would sunbathe like right there along the edge of the water. Well, we're fishing, and I heard a rattle. And when you hear a rattle, and you know it's a rattlesnake, and you immediately freeze, and you're like, oh my gosh, where's the snake? I'm about to get eaten. I've seen these movies. I look down, and there is a very large rattlesnake sunbathing by my brother's foot. It, would it have been loving for me to just ignore it? Would it have been loving for me to freak out about it? I need to calmly and clearly tell him the truth. There's a rattlesnake by your foot. That's love. What it boils down to is this, are your words dependable? Can someone count on you to tell them the truth? Can someone count on you to remind them of Jesus in a tough time? Are you able to be honest graciously with people's faults and be honest with your own? Can people trust that you have their best interest at heart? The second part of the way that Jesus changes our words is that our words become gracious. Verse 29 says that let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. The word corrupting is the word for rotten or poisonous, something that would poison the way that someone sees himself or sees the world. The world, we live in a constant world of criticism. There's very little kindness. But there are godly ways to use our words, but only such as is good for building up. We need to be a church where our words build each other up. Just this week, I had someone come to our door, bring us um, a, a gift bag of groceries while, we were, while our family was in, was in quarantine. I'm not gonna call the person out by name so I don't embarrass them. And the person gave us a word of encouragement that lifted our family's spirits. What, what would it look like for us to be a people who are consistently doing that for one another? It would build our faith. Those are words that I needed to hear in that moment. We encourage each other, we stretch each other's faith, but not just that but it's words that fit the occasion, a timely word. There's a right way and a right time to say something. Something might technically be true, but not timely. 
If someone's experiencing a loss, it might not be the best time to say, hey, you know, God is sovereign. He's in control. It might be time to say, you know what? God is a comforter and he's with you. We need to have words that it says here that, it may, that they may give grace to those who hear. Are our words giving life and grace to other people? Words that give hope, words that tell people there really is grace for you when you mess up. That allows other people to feel safe, to grow and rest in the grace of God. So our words change. Secondly, our anger changes. Verses 26 and 27 talk about our anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There is clearly here a type of anger that is not sin. Being angry is not sinful. In fact, God has been described as righteously angry. And there are times where we are going to be righteously angry. But the difference is, is God is always right in his anger. There's never a moment where God is unjust in his anger. But for us, there are legitimate reasons to be angry. When black people get killed by the police, that is a reason for us to be angry. We see Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd. We have reason to be angry. When vulnerable children are harmed, we should be angry. When people are abused, we should be angry. When injustice happens, we should be angry. When you are betrayed, you have a reason to be angry. But there's also unrighteous anger. And there's a very thin line for us between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. We will very quickly jump from one to the other when pride creeps in. When fear grabs a hold or we become self-righteous and what happens is if that is left unaddressed, it will start to fester. And that is why Paul tells us, don't let the sun go down on your anger. When we first got married, we got the advice, don't go to bed angry. Sometimes I do think you just need a nap. I think you're just tired. But what this means is this don't nurse it. Don't hold on to your anger. Don't cling to it. Because what this does is it leaves an opportunity, it leaves a handhold for Satan to get in and to create havoc. And it leads to all sorts of bad decisions. It's like the Snickers commercial that says, you're not yourself when you're hungry, which I equate with angry because I'm angry when I'm hungry. You're not yourself when you're angry. You'll make terrible decisions. And Paul is describing a stronghold that Satan will take hold of and begin to shift and shape your life. Tony Evans says that keep in mind that a stronghold isn't just a bad day. We all have bad days or even bad weeks. An emotional stronghold is an attitude or emotion that stays with you day in and day out. It does more than just show up from time to time. It dictates and often even dominates your thoughts, choices, and life. Anger has a way of dominating you in such a way that it will dictate your decisions. It will dictate who you're kind to. It will dictate the way that you treat others. And in verse 31, we see all sorts of types of anger. Anger isn't just always outright. Sometimes it is a bitterness in our hearts. Bitterness can often come across as very cold. You can be cold angry. You're just mad and you're gonna keep yourself distanced from other people. We can be just smoldering. You can just see it right under the surface that you're just ready to pop. There's just outrage. We live in a world of outrage where people have a very small fuse for anger. We have anger that's like clamor where it's just, we're gonna let people know that we're angry and it comes out in slanderous words. And I think the reason that we struggle so much with anger, whether it's a low-grade anger that you just can't get a hold of or a complete and utter rage is we have such a hard time forgiving because we forget how much we've been forgiven. 
we forget how much Jesus loves us and forgave us and how we're to forgive others in the same way. And I also think that we forget that we have somewhere to take our legitimate anger. We often just bottle it and bottle it and bottle it, but we've got to get it out. And Tony Evans again says that what we have to do is we have to roll that anger over to Christ. An old theologian said that when we imagine our anger, he said, take your anger to God. And he, and he gave the visual of, of a child burying their face in a father's chest and just letting it all out. We can do that because we have a God who can bear it. God changes our, our anger. Jesus also changes the way we work. This is a weird one. I, I, honestly, it's kind of kind of stuck in the middle of this thing about, you know, don't lie, don't don't you know, don't be angry, but also you need to work hard. Seems like a really strange fit, but I think this is all, partly Paul's way of saying, Jesus changes everything. He even changes the way that you work. Tim Keller says that work or labor is how you are useful to the human race. Is God changing the way that you work? Is he changing the reason that you work? That your work becomes honest, it becomes ethical, that it's for the good of others and that the resources God has given you is not for your own hoarding, but to bless other people. And here's the beauty of all of this, is the pressure is off. The pressure is off for us because the scorecard has changed. The scorecard is not, did you do these things? And if you did these things, you get in. It's that Jesus did all these things for you. Therefore, you have all you need in him. You have everything you need. You can tell the truth because Jesus is the truth. You have nothing to hide. You have nothing to fear. You can be honest about your sin. You can confess it because it really ultimately doesn't matter what I think about you or what you think about me, but it matters who Jesus has declared you to be. You're forgiven. You don't have to be angry because Jesus bore all God's righteous anger for you. You can forgive. You, you can work hard because you've already been approved by God. You can use your words well because of who Jesus declares you to be. As we close, I want us to think and I want us to ponder on how God has forgiven us. Is the way that you and I are living, is it, are we living in light of what Jesus has done for you and I? This morning, if you've not entered into that relationship with Jesus, I invite you to do so. I invite you to understand how he loves you, how he's forgiven you, how he died on the cross for you, and he will receive you by trusting in him by faith. Let's pray. Let's pray.